Meryl Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to this week's edition of the Merrill Memo. Well folks, are the Dubbo Council Chambers, are they going to be finally on the move? Tell me also, how is our building approvals going this year? Is Dubbo actually going through a bit of a growth spurt? And what about that fire during the week? Let's find out actually in regards to what the update is out there with those fires around Dubbo and Wellington. It certainly has been a difficult week for a lot of the firefighters. Good morning Matt, how are you buddy? Yeah, yeah good thanks, very good. I just want to tell a quick story before we get started, because last week we talked about the state combined carnival, athletics carnival that was held at Barden Park, and obviously we do the recording at a point in time, and then I spend time still around Dubbo over the weekend, and so after we did the recording, I went back over to Barden Park just to see how things were going, and there was a guy there who just noticed me out of the corner of his eye, and he came over and he said, now, you're the mayor, aren't you? I said, yeah, and he said, were you the mayor a few years ago? And I went, well, I was, and then I wasn't, and now yes. I am again. Yes. And he said, so did you come down to Blacktown yeah, maybe 10 or 11 years ago? And I went, yeah. Sounds like one of those leading done. questions a bit, doesn't it? It you know? was, exactly <laughs> Not quite right. sure where it's going to go. <laughs> so as it turned out, this particular gentleman who was there helping one of the volunteers, yes. he used to be president, spent about six years as president of Little Athletics Australia, right? and spent about seven years as Little Athletics New South Wales president. And way back in 2012, mm. when we had it confirmed that we'd received the grant money we needed from the state and the federal government to build Barden Park, to build that international athletics track, we formed a committee. And right. that committee had a range of stakeholders, people from Little Athletics here in Dubbo, people from Little Athletics across the state, people from schools, people from various building components. So a, a whole range of different people. And one of the things we thought would be a good idea would be to go and look at some other athletics tracks. So it was in 2012 that we lined up with Blacktown Olympic Park, Campbelltown Sports Stadium and Sydney Olympic Park right. to go and do a bit of a tour. We loaded up three cars, yes, had 10 yeah. people there, and these people were some staff members. So we had people like Mark Riley, who was GM at the time, had Wes Giddings, who's still at council yes, at the moment. Yes. Uh, but we also had people like Peter Bass from our community, who was involved in little athletics, Craig Gale from our community, David Williams, who probably would have been president of our WRT oh, yes, at the yes. time. Yeah. Yes, David would have been. Uh, and uh, myself and Alan Smith as a councillor. So we loaded up three cars, five o'clock in the morning, and off we went. And one of the places we went to was Blacktown, and we met with this gentleman by the name of Derek Feinberg, Finneberg, right. Feinberg, I think yes. it is. And so in doing that, one of the things that Derek remembered from that meeting all those years ago was that he was quite impressed with the council and the community members who were that committed to it that they'd spend, you know, a day. We left here at five o'clock in the morning, drove around all those places. We got back home at probably 10 or 10 30 that night. But just looking at the other facilities, what was working well, how you went with the building, how you went with the maintenance. And mm. the thing that we both remembered from the Blackdown visit was that Lane's Mainly one, but some in lane two as well, were pretty worn out on Blacktown. Right. And the conversation there in Blacktown was, make sure when you build your track, you put some money aside for maintenance. Yes. Because it's great to have an international standard athletics track, but if you don't maintain it, it very quickly becomes yes. a non-international standard Yes, absolutely. It drops track. away very, very quickly. And so that was part of our thinking. And so all of that information, so I did tell him that we took that on board and that was great advice he gave us all those years ago. And when we built ours, we actually did build in an ongoing maintenance budget for things like the track. Mm. But we also have little signs at the track at the moment. If you go over there and do some training, which you can do any time, it's open okay. the whole time. Right. It's got signs that say, if you're training, please don't train in lanes one and two. And we got that directly from that Blacktown experience exactly. because yeah. when there's races on, obviously if there's a longer race, yep. everyone's running in lane one. You don't want to be running a 1,500 metres yes. the whole race Gatling, out in uh, lane eight. Lane eight sort of thing, yes, yes. Exactly right. So the idea of when you're going there just do some training, it doesn't matter as much. Mm. So training lanes three out to lanes mm. eight because they're not getting as much traffic. And that certainly helped us preserve that. Mm. 2014, that track opened. We're going to do a relay of that track at the beginning of next year, sometime early next year, maybe April next year. So that'll be about 10 years from when it was open. Yeah. And again, we've got that maintenance budget built in. Having said that, we also got money from the state government to is do this it. this extra million dollars that the Correct. state government's going to give. Yeah, yes. that's spot yes. on. So 
the idea there is that, yes, we've been putting that money, this money away, we've got the money from state government, great, we can use that money for other things in our mm. community. So you're never going to knock back that money. But if we didn't get that money, we would have been able to use it on mm. that track and then not have other things in our community. But it was just one of those nice things, I think. He had good memories of it. He had good memories of a council that was very focused on getting it right long term. Yes. And it was just nice, I suppose, to catch up with someone that was helpful yeah. to us all those years ago. Absolutely. So, and it was a bit of that full circle as well. He'd helped us out all those years ago and now here he was yeah. volunteering. He's retired from his various roles with Little Athletics, but he was yeah. still volunteering. And they're just doing something useful for a track that really mm. he had, without really knowing about it, he had a small hand in what we've got there Absolutely. today. And he must have come along there last weekend and, and just truly embrace, I suggest, what the, the track has become as well and be very excited about the fact there's a new surface being laid too and the fact that his advice was taken. Well, he probably wasn't as acutely aware of how much we took or how much notice we took yeah, of his advice yeah. because he didn't know about the maintenance was going to occur next year. Right, he didn't okay. know about how we're running our budgeting. So having that little brief conversation with me probably did make him feel a bit prouder of yeah. the work that he'd done all those years ago. Uh, he's got an OAM, so he's obviously done a oh, fair wow. bit in the community yeah, yeah. and that's for his work in Little Athletics. So right. very well regarded in Little Athletics. But again, it was just nice to have yeah. that catch-up, I suppose, conversation around all of that. Absolutely. Mm. Well, mate, let's jump straight into then today, and thank you for that story. It's a great little story. Now, in regards to uh, our first up point of discussion, let's call it this, in regards to the council chambers. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we we raised this as a point of discussion in regards to the, the council chambers down there, which I think would have been established when the new building was put into place back in the 1970s at some stage. We're, we're still not quite sure exactly on the specifics of the date, but it was sometime in the 1970s. Now... The council chamber has been in existence obviously since then, but it looks as though there is the potential now for this to be moved. Now, there was a meeting during the week. Um, I'd imagine probably it's the very first point of uh, discussions in regards to how this is going to go. Are we moving the council chambers? Is, is this a, a definite yes, it's going to happen, it's, it's locked in, or where are we up to in regards to the discussions on this? A definite maybe. Definite maybe. I love those <laughs> definite maybes. Definite maybe. Is there anywhere particularly you're looking at wanting to go? Yes. So we've had some discussions internally because it was all about utilising the space that we have in the best possible way. Mm. And this is all about the economics of running council. We've got an area there. I don't know the exact area, but it'd probably be 150 square metres. It's our council chambers. And they're used for maybe three or four hours a month. It's all set up for a council meeting. We have a council meeting the fourth Thursday of every month. The second Thursday of every month, we have a committee meeting, and they're both after hours. So we use it twice a month, mm. and the space sits there the whole time mm. without being used. So we've had some discussions internally and said, well, is there a better way we could use this space? Is there something we could do to have some sort of multifunctional space? We've discussed that a little bit. We looked at some layouts downstairs. We've got some meeting rooms, some conference rooms downstairs. And we looked at that space and we've actually played around with a couple of configurations there with some councillors, with some of our staff, to see if there's a way that we could configure the downstairs area for our council chambers Mm. and then upstairs could just turn into office space. Played around with that and then it needs to get to the point where a decision needs to be made. Mm. So during the week, there was the committee meetings. Now, committing meetings don't make resolutions of council. What they do is they make recommendations to council. We had the committee meeting. Can I just ask, who's on that committee? Like, without naming names, but their roles. Like, is there a particular group of people who are in this committee? All the councillors are okay. on, these are called standing committees. So there's right, a whole okay, range it's of, one of the standing committee groups. Correct. Okay. Yep. So there's a whole range of other committees that we've discussed from time to time on council. The standing committees, and these are standard across councils across the state, the standing committees are made up of all councillors, yep. but they don't make council resolutions. You can give them delegated power to make more decisions. And the last council did give committees, standing committees, more power. But mm. this council said, no, we think council resolutions should be made at a council meeting, not a committee meeting. Okay. What happened at a committee meeting is that there'll be a whole range of things considered. And there's three separate standing committees that we have at council. They'll make a whole range of recommendations. So their discussions is all councils there, it feels like a council meeting. There's a few different rules mm. compared to a council meeting. It gives you a chance to debate things in a freer and more open environment. But ultimately, once the decision's made, it's a decision to make that recommendation to council. So and at this point in time then, if we look at this committee meeting that was happening in the other day in regards to it, in regards to the point of discussion, um, how much weighing do they give to the history of the space as opposed to the economics of, of why we need to move? 
the, it's hard to say why any councillor makes any decision. I don't want to put words in no, the no, mouths no. of any councillor. But there was discussion around all of that. Yep. There's a history there, like you say. Sometime in the 70s, maybe late 70s, the council moved into the current building and the council chamber has been there since. So think about all the decisions that have been made by council over all those years. Some pretty mm. major decisions have been made. And that's the room, that's the history there except for a little asterisk, which I'll talk about more in a moment, yep, but yep. that's the history of that. So when councillors are looking at all of this, we've got plans, the way the layout might look, we've got furniture that might be used, it can be packed away. And so councillors consider all that. And then in the end, the committee meetings, the recommendation from the committee, it was a unanimous decision to say, yes, go ahead with this. Now, the good part about the way the process works is you've got the papers that come out before committee meetings, you've got a few days to look at those, then you've got a decision by the committee. Now, that gives the community an indication of the way councils are thinking. It's a unanimous decision at a committee meeting. You probably get a bit of an indication about that, that councils are thinking, yes, this is a good idea. Then in two weeks' time, we have the council meeting, and that's when a council resolution occurs, right. and that's when staff can start acting on a council resolution. So, so there's two weeks now between the meeting time that held us during the week and when council will have their resolution, the moment to sort of the chance to vote on this. Yep. In that two-week time period, if anyone has a point of objection that they want to sort of put forward or their own thoughts in regards to the movement, is there an opportunity there for them from the general public point of view to come forward now to, to raise that objection? Absolutely right. Any councillor, you can contact any councillor about any issue before okay. council, but this is the opportunity now because it's out there in the public, people know about it, and by voting on it at a committee meeting, you get an indication of which way councillors are thinking about it. Mm. So again, given the fact that it was unanimous, you can probably work out from that that the councillors are probably thinking this is a good idea. Now, if a thousand people come forward and say this is a terrible idea for all these reasons, yep. then councillors can change their mind. In two weeks' time, the vote might go differently. And I've seen that happen before where mm. we've gone from a committee where it might have been a decision to make a recommendation to council and then it comes to the council meeting sure. and the decision goes the other way. Again, more feedback. Yep. And this is part of that open, transparent process. And okay. that's one of the reasons why councillors didn't want to have the delegated authority at a committee meeting to make council resolutions because it doesn't give the community enough mm, time for a say. to consider that to whatever okay. that, that information so, might be. So I suppose the next question would be then, whereabouts is the proposal going to move to? Like Whereabouts is the council chamber looking at going to? People might be familiar with the downstairs meeting rooms that we've got at council. So on the ground floor, you come into the car park and there are several rooms there that can be reconfigured. There's petitions that can be moved in and out. And so we've looked at there, and that's right. where we've done a bit of work over the last couple of months, doing some mock layouts about yeah. how that would look. So we've got plans for there. We've got some, when I say plans, they're really just drawings to show how it would be laid out. Yeah. So it would be downstairs. Now, those downstairs rooms are used pretty much every day okay. for committee meetings, for various mini-conferences, for presentations. I know there'll be times when, for example we might be giving out staff awards for long service awards yep. or I've even done citizenship ceremonies in those downstairs okay. rooms but they're getting too big now so we tend mm. to do them over in the Double Regional Theatre yep. Convention Centre rather than in those downstairs rooms but they're used for a range of internal and external meetings. The idea here would be they're well utilised, they're multifunctional rooms. Mm. Committee meeting afternoon, oh we've got a committee meeting at 5.30 tonight so our staff would maybe 3 o'clock in the afternoon say they're booked out from 3 o'clock onwards and we reconfigure it put the various desks around that need to be set up for a council meeting. Okay, it's now a council meeting. That night, that'll be packed up, and the next morning, it goes and it okay. continues so to be used. So there's more flexibility community. within this space. Absolutely right. And then the real point of all of this is that upstairs, where you've got the chamber, mm. that would then be reconfigured just to be normal office space. Okay. So you'd have staff be able to be there. Now, one example, it doesn't have to be this way, but one example is that across the road, across Church Street from Council, you've got a building, 69 Church Street. It's a, an old house that looks like many, many years ago, 50, 60 years ago. Okay. And that's office space for Council. When Council got to the stage where they couldn't fit all their staff in the actual council building, they bought the building across the road and they put staff in there. So that's got a number of staff in there. If you had an extra 150 square metres or thereabouts, mm. you could actually configure that for some office space and have the staff from across the road move into the main council building. Okay, so sort of free up that other building then. That would then free up the other building. Now, okay. we could sell it. It's been valued at maybe seven or $800,000. Okay. Or we could just lease it out. Maybe you could pick up 40, 50 grand a year for sure. that as an ongoing asset of council. But the point is that 
you could better utilise it. So by rearranging the space and moving out of the chamber that's not utilised all month, every month, I mm. use that twice a month, then suddenly you're putting a better financial position for council. And this group of councillors has made it very clear to our CEO, to the community at large, that we are a fiscally responsible council. So if we can do something like this mm. that is better financially without disadvantaging the public, mm. then that sounds like a good thing. Now let me just come back to that asterisk I put on it before. Yes. Because you talk about the history and about the gravatus when you go into the council chambers, you've got a picture mm. of Norm Cox on the wall. Nice. He was the mayor at the time when that chambers was open and presumably when we moved into that building. So there is all this history. There's all the former councillors that sat around the table there. One of the things that I thought about when I was thinking about that history is when I first got on the council, we didn't meet in that room. Okay, we had right, a fire. Right. You may remember yes, there was yes, a fire yes. at the council building. So the council building could not be occupied, either the entire building or large parts of that building, including the council chambers. When I first got on the council in 2004, we met in basically a classroom, it seemed like, at the old Dabo High building. Right. We'd okay. already bought that building because we're going to use it for a cultural precinct, which is what it is now. Yep. And so the council went, we can't have meetings in the old council building. They had to find somewhere for all the staff mm. to go, but we couldn't have meetings there. So I remember sitting around, It was, and it wasn't quite like this, but it was almost like sitting in a classroom mm. at a classroom table on a classroom chair. It was a little bit better than that, but yes. you're sitting around. And that sort of feel about it. Yeah. That's right. You're yes. sitting around essentially a, a classroom. Maybe it was an assembly area. I can't remember exactly, but sure. it wasn't flashed by any stretch of the mm. imagination. And the gallery, yeah, I'm sure I decisions were still being made and all that sort of were being made. Yes. And the gallery was sitting there. I, I remember one stage there in one of the meetings, I'm sitting there at my council meeting spot and about half a metre away was the gallery. You know, they could tap me on the shoulder and say, what are you doing this for, Matt? <laughs> what are you voting that way for? So it was a very enclosed you space. You didn't read paragraph three there. <laughs> yeah, that's Council right, go and read that again. <laughs> You've got some scribbles on your bit of paper there. What are you saying? So we still made decisions, yes. even though we're in a less than ideal environment. Mm. It still had gravatus because it was a council meeting. It mm. still was treated seriously. Mm. So the surroundings didn't matter. It's really the attitude of mm. the people in the room that mattered. So if we move from upstairs to downstairs, I still think it'll have that same seriousness. Mm. I think it'll still be a serious council meeting with serious decisions made. Sure. The other minor advantage is accessibility. Mm. At the moment, if I want to go to a council meeting in a wheelchair, I've got to ramp up to the main foyer of council, so the customer service area. I come in through that area, then I go into a lift, I go up, then mm. I'm in the staff area of council, then I come through there, I go down towards the chamber, and mm. there's a little short stair right. group, about yes. six or seven stairs down to where the chamber is. So then we've got a little... wheelchair access for that? We've got, thing? yeah, a little lift that goes okay. down there. So yeah. you move into there, you go down a lift, and then you go into the council chambers. And then the council chambers, where the public gallery is, is got steps up to the it's actual area. It's quite a area. process. So you wouldn't... You'd struggle to go up those, so you'd mm. sit off to the side. If I'm in a wheelchair and mm. I look at all that for me to go along to attend a council meeting, mm. I might just say it's all too hard. Downstairs where we're going, the proposal is to move it to, has mm. got nice easy ramp up to the area and it's all the same level. So accessibility for someone in a wheelchair, so even someone that might be on crutches, might be uh, you know not walking that well, it would be difficult for them to get to the council meeting now, mm. whereas the new one will be able to be moved in there quite easily. So mm. I think it's going to advantage from accessibility as yeah, well. Right. And imagine if we had a councillor in a wheelchair, that would be a major drama for them twice a month to get to that meeting space. Absolutely. Mm. Yes. Now it'll be interesting to see. So within Happy two weeks' time, we'll we'll see where it all ends That's up. That's right. Happy to hear some feedback. And yeah. then if the decision goes ahead, then it will be a process of buying the furniture we need to be able to reconfigure that and moving out of that and starting to see meetings in the downstairs area. So interesting time. Absolutely. Now, Matt, I'm just going to get uh, my magnifying glass here while I look through these um, building summaries on this one. It's a very small font, but I think I can actually read it all quite well. It's exciting times, though, is basically the point that I'm trying to make here is that uh, it looks as though, based upon what some of the building summaries are, is that in the last financial year, leading in this current financial year, should I say, there's been 527 building approvals here in Dubbo, which is that looks like, looking through here, yes, it's actually up about six already in regards to what was the last financial year. And the actual cost of these, uh, you know, the, the purchasing costs and what it's going to cost for the development side of things, the estimated is around about $240 million 
I'm looking at this thinking the fact that that's, that's quite a growth factor already. It's looking good. And Isn't so yes. we get in our building summary each month to our committee meetings. This is another one of the components. And this is all public information. So if anyone wants to get those committee papers, they can look through those. And mm. this is the sort of information we have in there. So we have a building summary. And there's a lot of information in there. But I thought I'd pick out this one in particular. Mm. So you've said a couple of those there. The last financial year, so we're talking about the 2021-22 financial year, we had 521 approved applications and the value of those was about $202 million. Right. Well, that yeah. sounds good. That sounds yeah. like a reasonably healthy regional council. And that's the entire W Regional Council mm. local government area. Mm. This year to date, and this would have been till the end of February, right. we've had 527 approved applications. So already up, which is great. Already in front yeah. of the entire year last year. Yeah. And the value of those, as you correctly said, $241 million dollars. For the year to date, again, we've got another four months of the year left. Mm. So it's in a pretty good position from that. And that's just a, an indication of what you get a bit of that anecdotal information back from people. They go, it's seeming like we've got a good, strong economy. Things seem like they're going well. When there are events on, things seem to jump accordingly. Mm. And it just seems like there's confidence. And I think that's a really big one, confidence in the economy. I'd love to put all that down to the wonderful new council we've got. I don't know we can claim credit for all of that. Well, I think you probably claim a little bit there, Matt. You've got to claim some. <laughs> well, we'll take a bit yeah, of it there. Absolutely. Fair enough. But in general, it's just a good snapshot mm. of where things are headed and how things are progressing. And sometimes you look at these figures and you, you drill down a bit deeper. I've seen figures before where the number of approved applications might be down, but the value mm. might be dramatically up. Yeah. But it might mean there might be one approved application for a very large building or a very large industrial site or there might be something that stands out. This one looks like things are ticking away with the same typical sized applications, but just applications up, value up, mm. good strong economy. And yeah. so many things in our economy come off the back of buildings. And I remember when John Walkham was on council, he used to really want to focus on if we get the building sector right, everything else flows along behind. Yes. And and I think he's got a point, uh, maybe you, you can't base it all around building, but it's certainly a good indicator. And if you've got a good, strong building sector, I think other mm. parts do flow along from that. And maybe it's, which comes first, the chicken or the egg. Maybe if you've got a good, strong economy, the building sector is strong yeah, as well. Yeah, it sort of works in together. But certainly there's no doubt about it that yeah. it's good to see good building strength in our economy overall for our economy. So, so tell me, in regards to these building approvals, like obviously building approvals can mean uh, putting on a, you know, maybe a back shed or an extension up to, you know, full on major developments of uh, major apartments or whatever the case may be. It, it, do you have any breakdown in regards to how that sort of stuff's working? Do we have, um, like from the point of view of new residences, are the new residence numbers right now, are they growing across, in a, you know, from previous years? Are we up on those type of things? So we do get, Lots more information than what I've done there. Mm. So what I'll do for a future podcast is I'll give you some of that other yeah, information because yeah, there is more down. information. And you're right, there are sometimes there you put a, a DA in for a shed, yeah. then a, a small shed or a garage or a pergola or whatever it might be. Sure, that adds to one of those numbers. So when we look at number of approved applications, a one could mean something very small, a one mm. could mean an entire apartment Absolutely, yeah, So yeah. They, there is a difference there. And that's why we put the value of those as well, because it gives you an indication of the average value of mm. each of those. So it just gives you a snapshot. But I'll pull mm. out some more information out of one of those reports mm. and bring you that, because you do get all of that information about the types of buildings and the summary of those as well and how that's progressing. So that might be of interest yeah. as well. It certainly looks as though the fact, though, too, that because the numbers are up across the board, that is a very positive thing. There's two parts to uh, this next part. Of course, during the week, um, start of the week in particular, we had uh, the fire out there near the zoo, out there on Obley Road. Um, and of course, out at Wellington as well, near Burundong Dam, there were fires out there. So obviously during the week, the uh, the Royal Fire Brigade, or the Rural Fire Brigade, should I say, would have been absolutely flat strap. Um, you had the chance during the week, early in the week, to get out there to the Rural Fire Service and to, uh, to have a look at a bit of a briefing in regards to how things were going. A couple of quick little things. First of all, how was the visit and, and what did you learn from that? And secondly, do you have any progress update in regards to the fires out there? Obviously, they seem to have been put out, I'm imagining now, but uh, has there been any significant damage done or any issues that, that's been reported back to you? So a few things there. Definitely, we had two major fires in our LJ. Cranbrook was one, which is the one you talked about on Obi Road, and mm. then the other one out towards Burundong. The Probably the good part about the Burundong one was the wind was blowing it towards 
Barrandong Dam, which oh, was okay. good because you're yep. probably not going to get too much burning on the dam itself once yes. it reaches no, the dam. Once that water is pretty much it. Yes. Yeah, and Cranbrook obviously was a potential for that to go crazy. There's a lot of area out there yeah. that obviously very How close valuable. to Dubbo was that Cranbrook one, by the way? Uh, it was uh, Cranbrook's a, a, a fair way out. I don't know how many kilometres off the top of my head, but okay. it's a reasonable distance out there. You've got to go along Oberley Road for a fair distance before you get there. Right. So I don't think... Dubbo was under threat per se, but yeah. obviously these are people in our region still and people that are potentially severely impacted. Mm. One of the things that I wanted to do was go to the control room and just have a look at things in operation. Yeah. So you were see, out there when it was all happening too, were you? Yeah, definitely. And again, it's one of those things that where does council fit in to the picture of all this? Because mm. sometimes people say, well, what's council doing about this fire or how does council fit in? We do have an emergency control group. We've got one of our staff members that sits on that group and that really involves all the emergency services that are needed for whatever the incident might be. Sure. During the floods last year, that emergency control group had people like the police, the rural fire service were actually on there, even though right. it wasn't a fire, but yep. they were helping us out for different things. Had the SES on there as well. Mm. Had the normal fire brigade, not just the rural fire brigade. Okay. So yep. you've got a, a range of different agencies depending on what the incident might be. With the fire, the Rural Fire Service is the lead agency. Right. But council... So they head it up when it comes to a fire. Exactly right. Yeah. When it's a rural fire. Rural absolutely fire. right. Yeah. But again, sitting in there when I was out there at the control room, you had a representative from the fire brigade, so the normal town fire brigade, because sometimes they'll work together depending on the incident. Yep. And you may remember on Tracker Riley, well, it was a couple of months ago now, along the Tracker Riley behind the Westerbo Bowling Club, yes. you've got some a little grass fire that occurred there just beside the concrete path. Now, that one was an in-town fire. Normally, the fire brigade would attend to that. But where that was and the nature of that, the fire service called in the rural fire service because right. they've got vehicles that can access that area better and they know better how to fight grass fires. Right. Yes. In an incident like we had with the rural fire service, when you've got a rural fire, there were some homes that were under threat and the rural fire service said to the fire brigade, you're better at protecting homes. That's what you do on a day-to-day basis, that's what your training is on, can you come and help us save some of these homes okay. yep. and we'll keep taking care of the bushfire, yep. the, the So they fire. sort of work in tandem and help that's each other right. out. Yeah. Yep. And so we council sits on that particular group. Okay. But really, we don't make decisions on that. The decisions are really made by consensus. When they sit around and you've got all these different agencies, mm. we think we need to go there, we think we need to have this happen I don't think there's a lot of argument mm. there, but there is someone, there's always going to be someone in control, mm. and the guy that had the vest on that said incident controller, That's in very large writing, <laughs> he was the one that was in charge. If you've got any questions, come to the man in the fluoro vest. That's, That's it. right. Yes. And then there was another gentleman there that had deputy incident controller. Right, so yes. if the first guy goes to the toilet, then yeah, the second guy... Two guy's... IC drops up. That's it. Yes. <laughs> That's right. But, I mean, it sounds simplistic, yes. but it needs to be like that because oh, you're absolutely. in the control room, and when oh, I looked yeah. at the control room, there were people in a whole range of different areas, mm. having discussions, talking about different things. It was a hive of activity. Mm. But when a decision needs to be made, mm. then they need to go to the incident controller and mm. say, what are we doing here? Here's the data. Here's the information. What are we doing? It sounds like it's military-like. You know what I mean? Like it was it's, a bit uh, like that. It, you know, it's cuts for war sort of situation. And what's the general have to say? There we go. And one of the things I did like was the technology that was there. Large screens on the wall, touch screens there. They can move around fires and get a whole range of inf- information. Some of it's being fed by satellite. Right. Some of it's being fed by planes that are flying overhead to get the latest information. Where are those fires? Where are they moving? Mm. And then in conjunction with what's happening on the fire grounds with the planes that we've talked about before with our RJ85 mm. large aerial tanker that's out there at the airport that's parked out there ready for just such an incident, mm. trying to work out where to go, you you're taking all this technology, but you're also taking information from people on the ground. Yes. They can't see the aerial view of what's happening, but they can certainly tell you what's happening on the ground. So yes. all the information, and they show me spots where here's where the large aerial tanker was dropping its retardant. Now, most of the time they're doing that, they're doing it ahead of the fire. Mm. They don't expect to put the fire out that's burning right now. What they're hoping to do with the large aerial tanker, for example, is get the retardant on the areas where the fire is moving to. So when it gets to that area, it's much harder for it to continue to burn. Uh, So things like that. This would be why, I suppose, when the fact that they freak out when there's a change in wind direction. Correct. Ah, yes, of course, Mm. it makes sense. Now, where council gets involved in this sort of operation is, again, we're there to support the various agencies however we can. And there was one particular area where they said, and this was in relation to the Burundong fire, we need a wind break here, we need a fire break, sorry, not a wind break, we need a fire break here, 
council, we need a couple of graders, maybe some extra equipment there and some of your personnel mm. to come and help us make a fire break to try and keep the fire contained in this area. Mm. Our staff then essentially drop whatever work they're doing, get some graders over there, start to move some soil around, do whatever is requested of them. Yep. Again, in safe protocols there, we don't want to send our staff into the middle of a fire, but again, going ahead of the fire, trying to break it up and have it ready to go. Mm. So it really is one of those things that it's every agency working together. There's always got to be a lead agency, but council's in there, but we're not leading the charge. I'm not walking in as mayor going, right, let's go and do this. And it would be ridiculous if I did do that because mm. I don't have any knowledge, any experience, any training on all these things in terms of a fire. Sure, you could get all the briefings from everyone, but having council there as a valued partner mm more so than having council there to try and run the operation yes, is absolutely yes. essential. So fascinating, interesting, absolutely. well done to all of those personnel. Some of them are paid, most of them are volunteers. Yeah. But even if you're paid, I don't know how much money you'd have to pay me to go and oh, send me and into a fire yeah, to try yeah. and They're incredibly brave, fire. these guys and girls. Exactly you know, like right. They're amazing what they do. Yeah. Yeah. So we thank them, and, and I did say it out there, that if, and I've said this before, if ever I had an emergency, whether it be a car accident, mm. whether it be a fire, anything like that, then I don't know anywhere else I'd want to be in the world than mm. right here because we do have so many people, and I've met many of these people over the years, but so many people that are prepared to risk themselves, risk their own lives mm. to go out there and help other people. So thank you for all the work you do. Yes, and absolutely. it does seem you like a very that. sophisticated yeah. operation that we've got there to try and help these things. Hey, last question on it. Just in regards to it, uh, clean up in regards to this. What, what happens after this? Like whenever a fire, like we know obviously we've seen the, uh, the clean up efforts, what happens after floods. What, what's the clean-up process in regards after a fire and what's council's involvement with that? Again, it's probably one of those things that it depends on a whole range of things. I've already had some phone calls from some farmers and I know our CEO's had some phone calls from some farmers as well about getting a bit of help, maybe getting them help with other companies like Blaze Aid, bringing mm. some things in, whether it be some hay in to help feed some of their stock. So it really is on a case-by-case basis. Okay. De- depending on what it is and how it operates – you might find some of those other agencies still involved in some way, shape or form, helping do some cleanup, helping clear some areas out that might have been burnt. You might have had some trees that might be burnt and they need to be knocked down because they're going to fall down and hurt someone yep. at some stage. So yep. all those so things... So council can assist with all of that sort of stuff, can they? Or? In some way, shape or form, council okay. ends up being involved in some of these areas. And it also depends on the declaration. So if it's an emergency declaration, we might actually get the costs of our equipment, our manpower, our hire of our equipment. Some of those might be covered by the state government. Some mm. of them might not be covered. So it really comes down to each situation is a bit different. Mm. And it might be what happened last week. In two weeks' time, something else might happen. That might be different. So, it's mm. again, I just can't stress enough that communication amongst all those agencies yeah. to get the right outcome for people that are at risk. The last thing you want when your home's at risk, when you've got your stock or your maybe some of your area or farmland, even fences, all that sort of thing, mm. when they're at risk. The last thing you want is a bunch of people scratching their heads going, oh, I don't know what we should do here. I don't mm. know what the protocol is with mm. that. Uh, gee, we'll get back to you. We'll work it out. You mm. want people to you know want, what's absolutely. going on yeah. and Make can the take decision. action. Yeah. That's right. And take decisive action and be ready to change that decisive action depending on what changes, wind changes, circumstances change, a whole range of things. So yeah. I think the group that's there and the communication that they've got set up seems to work very well. Always room for improvement, of course, but I think they do a really good job and I feel very safe on behalf of our residents when I see things pop up because I know we've got a great team there, including our staff, that are there ready to act when it's needed. That's wonderful. Now, Matt, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Pioneer Park in Wellington um, and the fact that there's uh, obviously the cleanup has to happen there and there's setting in the new roads and uh, all of that around that area there, just, you know, opposite um, or just sort of heading out there to the actual uh, race course there on the right-hand side. Now, what's actually happening here in regards? I noticed the fact, too, that there's been the money seems to be now in the bank. The the state government has given some money to the WA Regional Council during the week. So what's the quick update? Quick update is essentially we had a meeting down there just to do a bit of a photo shoot, hand over the money. I'm always happy to turn up for a photo if we're going to get $589,117. Absolutely, that's right. Which yeah, is how much, it's how much we got. And we're going to use that to make some improvements around Pioneer Park. Mm. But one of the things that I want to make sure the community in Wellington is aware of, because give us some feedback 
to say exactly what you want is we're going to change the configuration slightly. Now, there's some photos on my social media sites, if people want to look at them, where I took some photos of the damage that was done mm. to the side of Piney Park that's away from the river, so not the, the side closest to the river. All the right, side this is the opposite. Yeah, okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah, a bit further opposite side of the actual uh, river area. Yeah, further west. Further if you west like. of the um, the field there, the soccer field. Correct, there. and that used to be a road. So there used to be a, a, a U road. You'd come in one mm. side, you'd drive around in a U and come out the other side. Now that road on that western side there. The water flow, and I've seen videos of it, the mm. water flow was at a very high velocity and high volume as well. Mm. And that just picked up chunks of bitumen that was on that road and just took them away. It's amazing, isn't it? And this yeah. is what happens when you've got roads. You think of a road as being a pretty solid piece of infrastructure mm. and there's obviously bases underneath it and then the bitumen that sits on top. But when you get significant flows of water, mm. it gets underneath that and it picks up that roadway, like it's a little popsicle, and sends it downstream. It's like that, you know, that ice magic that you get on top of yeah, the yeah, uh, ice like cream that. sort of thing, and then they crack and they just sort of fall away like that sort that's, of thing. That's yeah. a really good example, actually. It it's, looks exactly like that. So yeah. when you look at that road now, and I went for a bit of a walk around that road, you've got chunks where it might be, say, 40 centimetres. Mm. You'll be walking along and there'll be just a drop of 40 centimetres where that chunk of road has just been shifted downstream. Wow. But you also see I stood amongst some roots of trees there all the ground around some of those roots of trees have been washed away. Now, mm. we'll make sure those trees are still safe, and I think there's enough root infrastructure they'll still be okay. Yeah. But we don't want to put dirt back in there and a road back on there because we're pretty certain we'll have another flood event like mm. we had in 2022. Yep. It might be next year, it might be five years, it might be ten years. There's but a sense of inevitability about all this now, isn't there? Yes. Absolutely spot on. And when that happens, it'll just happen again, and mm. then the council of the day will say, oh, we only fixed this up back mm. in 2023 mm. and now we're Here doing we it all again. Mm. What we're proposing to do is change the configuration around so that on the other side of Piney Park, the side closest to the river, yep. the water doesn't come through as quick there and we want to make that road so that it's an in-out road and some car parking there. On the western side, we don't want to put a road back in there. We want to plant some native species, do some ground cover to hold all that okay. soil together. So yep. if we put the soil back in there, which we'll do, then cover it with some things that will hold it. And you look across Piney Park, the actual soccer ovals there, that's all still in pretty good condition. Mm. So all that grass held that soil together, so when the water went rushing across it, it didn't try and take it all away. Whereas when it was just dirt and gravel mm. on the other side, it did take it all right, away. Right. Now, there have been a few people have told me in Wellington that they don't like that idea. They want to be able to drive around that U like they used to do. Mm. So really it's about getting that feedback from the community. At this stage... When we're doing any of our repairs, when we're fixing things from our 2022 flood events, we're trying to make it better. We're trying to make it more resilient. We know it's going to happen again. How do we make it to the next time it happens, our repair bill isn't as high? And this is one of those examples. Is, Keep, is, is there a time frame, again, in regards to what, what this process is now? Because you, what you're talking here about is, uh, sounds like we've got a few ideas sort of banding about. Um, and from Obviously, there's residents there now saying, look, I'm not necessarily liking what I'm hearing. Is there a time frame that residents have a chance to give their feedback before a decision is made on this? Straight away. Okay. Get into it. If, Get into it now. <laughs> don't hesitate, folks. Get we out started there. the planning for it because we okay. think this is the only sensible way to go sure. to make it more resilient for the future. But again, everything's open to discussion. So mm. if people have got some ideas about it, then do it now. And the reason we're talking about it, I want people to know about it before they see it and then they go, oh, no, yeah, what yeah. did you do that for? This Absolutely. is a much better idea, yep. something we may not have thought of, for example. Mm. So certainly do that. But even the seats, there's, I took a photo of it and there's a couple of little bars coming out of the ground, just right. a, a vertical bar. Yeah. And I said to one of the people that lived down there, I said, oh, those little bars there, what are they? And they said, until a few months ago, they were seats. So they were seats along the side of that ground. And the water took that as well. Just cut it off. It's almost like someone's come along, hooked up a tractor to that seat and just given it a yank and taken it yeah. away. So it gives you an idea the power. of the velocity of those. So yeah. even if we change that, we might put some big sandstone blocks in there as seats, mm. which we've got some around Track Riley, for example. Yep. And they are quite good in floods because they're obviously very heavy. Mm. They're sitting on very solid ground and they don't get snapped off a couple mm. of bars like the seats were holding onto. Mm. So <laughs> just things like that. Yeah. We think we can make it better than it was. Yeah. Different, yes. Better, I think so. Yeah. But again, happy to hear feedback Absolutely. from the community. So give your feedback, guys. Get out there and give your feedback. And Matt, during the week you attended attended here a design workshop for the North West Precinct area. This is an early start for you, mate. Seven o'clock in the morning. 
I know you probably would have got up and done your 10K run, so you probably would have been uh, up at five anyway. So this is probably a little bit later for you. This is all right. Um, how's it all progressing out there? And who was at this meeting the other day? Because as we've talked about already, this is a very exciting uh, new precinct, residential precinct that's uh, obviously now ready to get started here in Dubbo. Um, it's at that conceptualisation stage, I'd almost imagine it being. So what happened at the meeting and who was there and uh, how's it all looking? Well, we've got a couple of meetings. We actually had some workshops the day before where it was some consultants okay. and they're going through looking at various plans and then the next day we had an early morning meeting and that was 7 yep. o'clock in the morning designed to allow councillors to get there. Councillors often work and uh, they're at their normal yes, job so it's yeah, hard to get away it. during the day. We had a couple of councillors in it with three councillors at the meeting the day before which went for basically most of the day but uh, councillors got there for about half the day mm. to go through and talk to consultants. But uh, again, it's those early morning meetings most meetings are either after hours or before hours so that we yes. can get people along there. But it is an exciting area. And one of the things that we talked about with consultants is that we've got an opportunity with this huge area there, 6,000 blocks of land we've mm, talked about. It's massive. Got an opportunity to make this the way a modern environment, a modern housing environment could and should be. Mm. And that sounds wonderful. Mm-hmm. You put nice wide streets, you put walking paths, running paths, bike paths, you build in green infrastructure in amongst all the trees. That all sounds absolutely brilliant. Sounds fantastic. But if I'm a developer, I look at that and I go, well, I'm not going to develop there because my yield's not going to be high Mm. enough. And I did write an article during the week talking about the life of a developer and people kind of have this idea that a developer sits back on their pile of cash and strokes their cat while they laugh at all the people that pay them all their money, something out of a James Bond movie maybe. But I put a bit of reality around the life of a developer and it's a – big risk mm. and it's a long time frame for you to be a developer but we need developers in our community if we had no developers mm. despite all these negative things that people think about developers then we wouldn't have our housing we wouldn't have somewhere to live we wouldn't mm. have problems that we've got now with enough housing or affordable housing yeah. being solved if every developer said well i'm not making money i'm going to mm. forget about this whole thing yep. i think it's fair and reasonable that a developer makes money and yes. when you think about the millions sometimes tens of millions of dollars they'll invest in a project, and for a developer, they see a plot of land and they can see mm. the vision. Mm. So they've got to have that vision. They've got to get the zoning right. They've got to go through and basically buy the land, either yeah. their own money, get some investors, get the bank's money, yeah. and then be satisfied they're going to sit on that for a long period of time, mm. go through and spend more money with consultants to get plans done up, get all those plans through council, and then finally when you do all this, you can start the construction underground pipes in, stormwater pipes, sewerage pipes, water, NBN connections, a whole range of things. And then finally get all that done, years and years down the track, Mm. and you say, wow, let's pop that bottle on the champagne. I've just sold my first block. So you might have invested $10 million in this over five years, maybe longer, maybe 10, 15 years, who knows. And then you sell that first block of land for 200000 or 300000 you go, great, I've invested $10 million over 10 years. Yes. And I'll go back $200,000. That's it. It's all this time already. But, that's right. Uh, yeah, and you keep selling. And then eventually you get to the stage where you've sold enough blocks of land, you're filing in the black, and then you might make good money. And mm. I say, good luck to you. If you're mm. prepared to invest a lot of money over a long period of time and then you get some profit out at the end of it, then that's good because if you didn't get that profit – you wouldn't do the development, so you'd get nowhere. Well, so it's, it's how all great countries are built in so many ways, isn't it? You need to have the people prepared to take the risk. Exactly right. So we do all this, mm. and so we talk about this beautiful, wonderful area we might have, and there's a number of developers involved here. Don't forget, this is council owns a chunk of that land, mm. but there's probably another maybe eight, nine. Okay, so it's, it's quite own. a wide group of people involved in this project. Correct. It's, so we want to tile that together and make it a wonderful area. Yeah. But when we start talking about this wonderful living area, then mm. yield suffers. And when yield suffers, developers say, well, I'm not going to get a return mm. on my investment or to get a return on my investment, I'm going to have to sell those blocks of land, not for 200 mm. or 300 grand, I'm going to sell them for $500,000 yeah. and then affordable housing goes is, right Is the there window. a compromise position with this? One of the things the consultants talked about, which I did like the idea of, is that you have this constant competition between yield and amenity. Mm. You increase the yield, you decrease the amenity in general terms. Mm. You increase the amenity, you make it a wonderful, open, lovely living area, you decrease the yield. So therefore price has to go up. But one of the ways that these consultants believe that we can solve that constant problem is with some extra density. So I'm not talking about packing in a whole bunch of houses in all very small blocks, but mixing up the density. So some parts of the development might have higher density. We might talk Mm. about 
some units, some flats, some apartments, yeah. that type of thing. Not 10-storey apartments that you just cram people mm. into, but some nice apartments that as you get either at the beginning of your working life or the end of your working life, you might only need a one- or two-bedroom apartment. You don't want to be mowing the lawn. You don't want to be looking after the garden. Yeah. You want to just have somewhere to live and you then go about your daily life as there's the place that I yep. go and eat some food and go to bed, but the rest of my life I'm out doing things. Mm. Or for people that get a bit older, they might retire, they might want to travel a bit more, go and see grandkids, all sorts of things. They want somewhere that is their home, but they might only be there six months of the year. So they mm. need that big yard. They come back and, oh, look at how long the lawn is and the garden's getting out of control. So add some density, maybe some 300 square metre blocks of land for some houses, but then mix it up with some 600, 800,000 square metre blocks of land and then have the bigger streets and the more open green spaces, yep. all of these things mixed together, in my opinion, can give you the ability to get the yield you need to be able to make a profit, get the amenity you need, mm. and have a variety of living types to mm. have people progress. So you might have someone that moves in there in their early 20s, they just starting in their career, and they move into a one-bedroom apartment. And then as they go forward in life, they might get to the stage where they've got a partner, they have some kids, oh, this is too small for us now, let's move into a house with a backyard for the kids to play. So they end up in a three or four-bedroom house in this same area, mm. and then go forward 30, 40 years, the kids have all left home, they're travelling a bit more, they've retired, we don't need this big backyard, let's move into oh, almost something like we had when we were in our 20s, a smaller apartment, maybe some aged care facilities in that area a whole range of different options are open to you yeah. as to where you might go. But I think that's where you'll get to. So it's pretty exciting. Mm. Can we realise the vision? Eh, that's the that's the challenge. Yep. Consultants and architects are wonderful at drawing beautiful pictures that look fantastic and inspire you and get you excited. Yes. But when the rubber meets the road, you've got to be able to deliver on that. You've got to be able to make sure you can get that at a price that's affordable and that delivers some profit for some developers. Which is, and I think one of the questions that um, probably worth asking right now in regards to it, if you've got um, you know seven or eight developers plus council involved in the, the development as well, does council uh, have a final say on the nature of how this entirety of this development looks? Or does it work in regards to the fact that each individual developer who has their area to develop, I'm not quite sure if that's how it's looking, uh, did they then have to put their individual proposals to council or the grand vision idea? Is this council or is it sort of broken up into segmented parts of each one having their own sort of vision that council then approves on? What we're working on at the moment is what I'd call a structure plan. Okay. So for the overall development of that overall area, here's the general structure that we would look at. And the term the consultants use is we've got our thick textures out at the moment because right. we're drawing big general lines. We haven't got our fine pencils out getting down to the fine detail. The point you make is an absolutely brilliant point. It's all well and good for council to say, look at this, here's our structure plan. This is how we'd like to see this area mm. in an overall view of this wonderful area. Yep. And then one developer owns a parcel and says, well, it sounds great, but I want the yield. So yep. forget about that. I'm just going to put a bunch of 300 square meter blocks in and that's it. So have your structure plan, but I'm just going to go and do my thing over here. Mm. Now, ultimately, council is the consent authority for all of this. Mm. So if a developer wants to do that, they can. And if it's legal, if it's complying, if it still is a reasonable development in the whole scheme of things, then it's probably going to get approved. Part of the, the role that council can play here is to say, here's what we'd like to see. Here's the vision for this area. We'd love it if the developers tied into this vision and really worked down that same path. So sometimes it can be more influence rather than a big stick yep. to say you must do it. There might be some examples in this development where you will get some developers who just say, yeah, I've seen your structure plan, I've seen your vision, I don't care, I'm just going to go and do my thing. And there might be a bit of push back and forth between the developer and council to get some sort of compromise there. Yep. Yep. But if we get the structure plan right, if we get that overall vision right, our hope is that developers will buy into that, literally yep. buy into that overall vision. And when you're developing, one one problem I've had with some developers, going back to the stroking the cat on the pile of money, mm. is there are some developers mm. who just look at yield, mm. just look at the profit, and there are other developers who say, no, I'm developing something that's going to be a long-term community asset. I want to be proud when I walk past that area and yep. go, you know what, that was my development. I, I did that. I was responsible for how that looks and so I want it to be done right and sure 
I'm not going to make the same amount of money if I did it this other way, but I'm still going to make money on it. I'm okay. Do you have to have all the money in the world? Probably mm. not. Mm. So it, it, it is a challenge, and that'll be a constant challenge going forward mm. with so many different landowners. And some of those landowners might end up selling out to a single developer, for example. It might be a developer that says, I'll do a joint venture with you, you own the land, and we'll develop it all, and then we'll share in the profits. So there'll be a whole range of different yeah. scenarios there. The only thing we can definitely control is the land that we own. The other parts there, yes, we've got some control as a consent authority, but also people can still put in legal applications. And it probably also reinforced the importance of bringing back the developers meeting like you talked about last week. Yeah, uh, that's a good point Having too. that opportunity there to, to talk about things like this and get everybody on the same page, hopefully. Yeah, and again, developers still need to make money. So mm. I, I can't stress that enough. So we don't want to create an environment where we're seeing developers broke because we want developers in Dubbo. Absolutely. We're not trying, certainly not out there saying we're only pandering to developers and only worrying about their bottom line. We're worried about the community. Our number one yes. focus of council is to do the right thing by the community, but that involves doing the right thing by a whole range of different people. It's getting that balance, isn't it? He's getting that balance. Mm. But I think it's pretty exciting. Yeah, and absolutely. Keep an it's eye very exciting we'll, times. We'll, we're a long way from staying to dig holes there yet. Yes. We'll see plans, or the community will see various plans, various structure plans, various different plans out there before, I've said before, by the year 2025, we'll see the first house go down in that area is my estimation at this stage. So a long way to go before we get to that, but this is the time you can get it right. If we get some lines on a bit of paper and they're not quite right, well, we can change them. Once you start building houses there, oh, gee, we didn't think about Mm, that. mm. bit too late then. That's a very exciting time indeed. Now, Matt, speaking uh, with this whole idea of the land sales, uh, oh, probably well, must be a couple of months ago now, we talked about Keswick and how we had to the auction, went to the auctions, and the auctions went, didn't quite get the result we wanted. Um, now, back then we talked about the whole idea of the fact that those Keswick uh, land uh, sales were going to go out now to uh, through the agencies in town. Um, it looks as though that's... What's happening right now is the fact that uh, the Keswick land, if people want to go and buy land in the Keswick estate, they can now go through the agency groups in town? Almost there. won't be long, but okay. they can buy them from council at the moment. Yep. But yeah, we did them at auction. We sold 12 of 52, so yep. not a brilliant result. I still think it was okay. I mm-hmm. like this council, that this council's prepared to make decisions to try things a little bit different, as long as there's not a big downside. In that case... If we didn't sell the blocks of land at auction, we always knew we could sell them later. So we tried it. It worked okay. But it also gave us market value. An auction is certainly a way to find out what people are prepared to pay for things. So we've got that market value. And other developers actually changed their price on the back of our auction. Okay. But I would have liked to have sold more than 12 blocks. Yes, that's right. Council's now selling blocks of land. It's fair to say we've got some great skills and some great experts on our staff. But it's fair to say that selling blocks of land is probably not the number one skill set mm. in our team. Mm. They've been talking to various people who have been interested in blocks of land. We've been going through that process. We haven't really been that successful in that process. So it's now time to go to the agents. So we've basically issued a letter to all agents and hopefully every agent's included in that. If you're an agent and you're listening and you didn't get a yep. letter, certainly contact council. Basically what we've said, that we're happy to enter into non-exclusive agency arrangements with the agent. So rather than yep. pick one agent and then that's council, a public authority, picking one agent. You sometimes have to do that. You might yep. go through a quotation or tender process. But in this case, we think the easiest thing to do is to say to all agents, you're all open to sell them. Come back to us. We'll set you up in our system and basically see who wants to be involved. Now, we've had five replies so far. Great. So there's five agents straight away that said, yep, we're happy to be a part of this. Obviously, they'll earn commission as they yep. go down the, the track. But we also think that's their expertise. If you're yep. a real estate agent, you've probably got expertise in selling real estate. Yes. So let's take advantage of those experts in our community and get them out there selling them. So you will see them advertised somewhere soon. Okay. In the meantime, if you still want to buy one, you, you hear this, through council. you're desperately after it, just go and see council, yeah, ring yeah. council, and you can still buy one directly off council. As they say, the land's still available, folks. During the week, um, you had a, a meeting with the Midwestern Regional Council and the Warrumbungle uh, Shire Council to further discuss your roles in regards to the Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone. Such a great title for a zone, isn't it? The old title meetings there. So uh, now this is one of these groups we've talked about a fair bit, haven't we, in regards to this renewable area. And it is very exciting what's happening out there. So we are talking earlier in regards to this and, and just how 
I suppose, from the point of view of where this is leading to. So what's actually happening here right now, because some of the stuff we're looking as though it's going to happen is pretty exciting stuff here as well. It is more excitement, a lot of excitement in the region at the moment. There is a lot of excitement. But this is something that we will see develop. We'll see 5,000 short-term employees required, short-term accommodation over the next five, maybe seven years. We'll see incredible construction projects happening. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we are conscious of as a council is to make sure the community gets some sort of benefit. I'm talking about not just a benefit of saying, wow, isn't this great? We're part of solving the greenhouse gases or CO2 Mm. problem for the state, for the nation, Mm. but also make sure we get some sort of economic benefit out of it. One of the problems we've talked about before is that if you go and build a wind farm, there is a compulsory process where you've got to pay some money in a planning agreement. If you put a solar farm or a battery together, there's no compulsory process. And mm. I've gone as far as had discussions with the Premier about that because I just I don't understand it. No one's been able to explain no, it to me. No. But they're the rules as they stand at the moment. One of the things that we've put together on council is a framework for any proponent that comes along, whether it be wind or solar or battery, and say we expect a 1.5% of the capital cost of that project to go towards the community in some form of planning oh, that's fantastic. So that's a proposal you've now put forward now. That's what we've said as a policy of council. Right, okay. So we've got a starting point. Yep, excellent. Working in the Central West Arana Renewable Energy Zone means we're working with Midwestern and Warren Bungle as mm. well as Dubbo. And so we've discussed that amongst the group of the three of us so that we've got a consistent message. So the three of us have all mm. said the same thing in terms of that policy. We've shared our policy with the other two councils, for example, because yep. we want any of those proponents that are coming along to know the rules are going to be the same mm. amongst the three councils. Mm. Now, they don't have to do it. This is the problem. I was going to say, is that an enforceable policy? No, this is the problem. Someone mm. comes along to put up a solar farm, we say, well, here's our framework. Here's yeah. what we think you should do. Here's the planning agreement we think should be 1.5%. And that proponent says, great, thanks for that. And we'll ignore it completely because really? we go through the state government. And state, state governments won't back you on this? Is there any well, way? we hope one day they will, but okay. at the moment, no. Right. There is a process where you have to have discussions with the local council, but mm. those discussions could be, hi, Matt, how are you going? Lovely day today. Let's have a coffee. And right, I can tick the box now to say I've had a discussion with council. Mm. Now, that's been a little mm. bit frivolous, but they don't have to pay. So we've said, let's put together this 1.5%. And one of the things that's really important is that the three councils meet on a regular basis. We just do video conference calls. We meet on a regular basis to share information because we don't want a proponent to come along and play us off against each so other. It's like playing mum off against dad sort exactly of thing. Exactly right. Yeah. We don't want to have secret meetings with each of those. We're very open and forthcoming with all the information we share mm. just to make sure that any of the proponents that come along know that the three of us are going to be there for our communities. We're going to push for the 1.5% and we'll get some pushback. Already one of the battery proposals that's come forward has said 1.5% is too much. We'll just go 1%. And again, we'll stick to our guns as mm. much as we can, but they mm. don't have to do it. Mm. But We'll have those discussions and go forward and maybe it's going to be different, but we'll make sure we keep sharing that information. So Mm. we'll keep going that path. And some of these projects go across council lines as well. And one of the classic ones that's an interesting one is Mm. that there is, we've talked about it before, the potential for a battery using water. So in other words, having a a dam, like a snowy scheme where we've got a dam down near Burrandong that'll be yes. a high dam and a low dam. There'll be turbines there, too much power, it'll pump water upstream yep. or up to the top dam. When they need more power, water will fall, spin turbines. So it's a it's a form of a battery, if you like, mm. but using water as that. That particular one is in Dubbo Regional Council's local government area boundary. Right. But to access that, you go through the Midwestern Regional Council area because there's no roads that directly access Ah, that area because the boundaries of Wellington were drawn before the dam was built and the dam kind of cuts it off a little bit. So there's a perfect example. That'll be impacting Mudgee in terms of road usage, and people will probably live in Mudgee while they're working on that project, yep. but it's technically in Dubbo's LGA. So we might say to the proponent, oh, yep. we'd like some money for that, it's in our LGA. Yep. Mudgee would say, well, hold on, the impact is on Mudgee, not mm. on Dubbo. Mm. Yep. So that's where we all work together, and, and I think that planning agreement... It's the importance agreement, of the meeting, isn't it, really? That's right, and yeah. that planning agreement, we think, being fair and reasonable, is that we don't think Dubbo should get much money out of that planning mm. agreement. It should mainly go to Mudgee, but again, by having those discussions and being fair and reasonable... Yep amongst the councils, we're in a much stronger position when we go to those proponents and Absolutely. talk to them. So we'll continue these discussions. Yeah. We'll see what we can get for our communities. We'll, we'll work as well as we can. 
within the frameworks that we create, but also within the rules the state government puts oh, out. That's terrific. I remember back uh, a number of years ago, I'd sit and watch the Tour de France and I'd listen to the great voice of Mike Tomolaris. Of course, he'd be there and he'd be uh, calling these uh, wonderful events, heading over the Alps, the Pyrenees or whatever. Now, it sounds like Mike Tomolaris was uh, in town during the week and he was part of the Mental Wheels Tour uh, from Dubbo to Orange and then from Bathurst to Mudgee. Now, this sort of gives a bit of indication of the type of stuff you do, Matt. Um, <laughs> you know, you're, you're there one minute talking... Um, about uh, what's happening in the Northwest Precinct and all the developers. The next minute you're out there uh, having a chat to guys like Mike Tomolaris and, and heading off the, the group of, of cyclists for a charity event. So how'd it go this week? Well, I do actually chat to Mike Tomolaris from time to time. He did me a favour years ago right. with Tour to O'Rock. We normally have a guest rider each year. So we had yes. Megan Dunn one year, yes. had Robbie McEwen, uh, Matt Keenan from Again yes, SBS, yes, and, yes. and we had Mike Tomolaris. And so... He did a favour there, and all those people come along and give their time up for free when they participate in Tour de Rock, and Mike mm. did the same. And you're chatting, and from time to time, you'll contact me for something, and, and I'll reach out to him for different things. And he rang me during the week, and he said, Oh, Matt, sorry I didn't give you more notice. He said, But I'm in Dubbo at the moment, and I just thought, Oh, I'm in Dubbo, you want to catch up yeah, for yeah. coffee? In Dubbo at the moment, we've got a bike tour that starts tomorrow morning from the zoo. Can you come and wave the group off, please? I went, Yeah, sure thing. So we went to the zoo on Friday morning. And there's a group of about 50 riders that are part of this Mental Wheels Tour. Oh, They've got a target of $150,000. that fantastic? It is. And they were mm. over 100 by the time we started there. But mm. again, for and I spoke to the group of riders and thanked them for their mm. efforts, that sort of thing. But yeah, Mike liked the idea that it just gave it a bit more importance, this mm. ride, that here's the mayor coming out early in the morning just to wave off the rider, send you on your way, best of luck for the day. I did make sure that I stuck it in there that they probably won't meet the orange Bathurst or Mudgy mares along the ride there. But remember <laughs> that you met the, the Dubbo mare along the ride there and uh, come back and visit us at another time in the future. It, love it. But they did stay at the zoo overnight, so they had a fantastic oh, fabulous. experience yeah, there yeah, as well. Yeah. Uh, but it is nice to have those contacts with people like Mike. Again, it's one of those things that you meet these people, they help mm. you out, you help them out over time. Mm. But you, you build up those contacts in any occupation yeah, that you do right. it. and it's good to be able to have people call on you in either direction to help out but yeah. good luck to the Metal Wheels Tour it was only a short tour as I said only went from Dubbo to Orange to Bathurst to Mudgee over three days yep. uh, but again good to see people out there raising money for mental health Ah, oh, that's wonderful now, Speaking of great groups and uh, groups are doing wonderful things in the community uh, the Paul Ramsey Foundation now this is a group uh, I didn't know too much about the Paul Ramsey Foundation, I must admit, but it sounds like they're an incredible operation who do some wonderful things in the community, particularly, I suggest, for those who are a bit disadvantaged in the world, uh, particularly here in Australia. So you had a, a meeting during the week with the foundation. Are they, they looking at setting up an operation here in Dubbo, Matt, or what, what's, what's happening here? Maybe give a brief rundown who the Paul Ramsey Foundation are. Paul Ramsey Foundation, I didn't know all about either, but certainly one of the things that they do, they've been very fortunate that Paul Ramsey was a very wealthy man and he left a large amount of money, in fact, a large amount of shares in a significant healthcare company okay. to the Paul Ramsey Foundation. And the job of the Paul Ramsey Foundation now is to try and break the cycle of disadvantage. Oh, that's a great, and great in speaking, cause. It is. In speaking mm. to, it was actually a dinner that I went to with, the, they had the board out in Dubbo and some of the executive leadership team. And in speaking to the board and the leadership team mm. at the dinner, one of the things that I did say is that it sounds like they're doing the job of government in some mm. respects. Now, they do sometimes work with government mm. in various proposals or various projects that they do. It's the role of charity groups, though, don't they, sometimes? You've got to fill in the gaps almost. They have to do that for... I think you're right. And mm. one of the problems is that one of my criticisms of government in the past has been that sometimes government projects are an election-length project. So mm. if yes. it's a yes. four-year project or a three-year project, they're happy to run with it. You don't see projects like Sydney Harbour Bridge, Opera yes. House, Snowy Mountain Scheme, those projects from yep. decades ago, from almost 100 years ago, some of yep. those. 10 to 20 years sort of projects. That's right. They yes. were big long-term projects that yes. governments invested in, whereas now you see projects that are, if I can't cut a ribbon in this term of government, don't yep. want to know about it. Yep. I'm being a little bit harsh, but... No, I, don't, I think you're true. That's spot on. Yep. So then when you get someone that says, we're going to break the cycle of disadvantage, this is a generational issue. Absolutely. And we've all seen it where we've seen kids that we think, wow, that kid isn't doing the right thing. Mm. But then we see the parents and mm. the lack of parenting that might have occurred. And you think, wow, what chance did mm. that kid ever have in life 
when we see the upbringing. I mean, I've been out to a juvenile justice centre here. I spent mm. some time with Father Chris Riley doing some various projects through Rotary right, at one stage. Right. And I remember meeting out there and just talking to some of those kids and some of those kids saying, we love it here in juvenile justice. We love it here in jail. And I was trying love to get my head wrapped around that. Wow. And when they further talked to me and they said, the abuse or the fear we had mm. in our home or the lack of food, mm. you you in this place where you're getting three meals a day. It's safe. You, you're exactly right. You're safe. You, mm. you know you're not going to get abused by someone coming home drunk, beating you up, watching your mother get beat up, all sorts of things. Mm. I mean, I won't go on about it too much. No. But that cycle of disadvantage, you can't fix that problem in a three-year cycle. No. It is generational. No, absolutely. And that's what the Paul Ramsey Foundation is all about, breaking that cycle that of disadvantage. Now, yeah. there's a huge number of projects that I heard about when I spoke yeah. to them, and I won't bore our listeners with all of that. Yeah. I almost say, boy, that's the wrong word. I won't take up the time of the listeners to do that. Go and look it up yourself. There's some yeah. great projects they do. Yeah. I can't tell you about any plans they've got for what they might do in Dubbo, but you can probably put two and two together yeah. and say that if they had their board and their leadership team in Dubbo for a couple of days and they had a dinner mm. with a few community leaders, including myself, then probably they're looking to do something in Dubbo. Absolutely. They've identified a need, I'd suggest. And exactly right. Yeah. And anything they do in Dubbo, I think, will be to the benefit of Dubbo. So Absolutely. again, happy to go along and, and meet with the team there, happy to go along and, and talk to them and give them a bit of a yeah, snapshot yeah. of Dubbo and some of the various things that I think Dubbo needs. So oh. hopefully we'll see more and hear more about that in the future. Oh, that'd be terrific. Now, Matt, we've had another busy week this week, and of course, we're heading up now to, of course, your wonderful little moment, the Limerick of the Week. So, what have you got for us this week, Matt? What uh, what are the listeners going to be impressed by this week with your Limerick skills? This is your favourite part of the week, I'm sure. I always get so excited about your Limericks, I really do. <laughs> Maybe it's the English teacher coming out of me, I don't know, Maybe, but I enjoy I, it, I, I don't know. I should get you to mark them for me, <laughs> I thought I'd do it about the council chambers. Oh, yes, yes, controversy yes, very topical. One. So I, don't, I yeah. don't mind a bit of controversy. I don't mind different points of view. So here we go. There once was a council that knew their old chambers just wouldn't do. So they packed up and moved, and though some disapproved, their new home made their dreams come true. <laughs> well done as always. I'll give you a 10. There you go. Oh, thank you. <laughs> out, out of 10 or out of 100? Oh, I'll give you a 10. <laughs> Well, folks, of course, that just about wraps us up this week for our Merrill Memo. It's been another little busy week, hasn't it? Look, stay out there this week, stay safe, enjoy what is being, I suggest, some beautiful weather coming up as well. And until next week, take care. Merrill Memo with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.